I'll be reading this morning from 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 17 through 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of God. Morning. Are the Nessus here? Is that is that news correct? That there's remission? Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we uh, we praise you in the good times, we praise you in the bad. And we, we can do that as ones who have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus because we know that you are a good, loving God and that you are sovereign over all things. And Lord, we do know that you give us more than we can handle all the time. But we thank you, Lord, that, um, that your grace is sufficient for whatever trial you so choose to bring into our lives, that your grace is is sufficient, your sustaining grace. And I got to thank you for the, the news um, of, of little Piper being in remission. God, we rejoice in that great news. Um, Lord, our ultimate hope is not on um, any particular person being healed or any particular um, circumstance being resolved, but God, we have begged you and we continue to beg you for. the eradication of, of our cancer in this infant. And I thank you, God, for right now that the news is good. And for that we rejoice. And thank you for that good and gracious gift. And God, I pray that um, this morning, Lord, if, if nothing else, that we would make much of you, that we would uh, stand in and boast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only news that can set the captives free. The only news that has the power over death and the power over sin and the power over um, your, our enemy, Satan. And so, God, we're here just to, to um, ascribe to you all the honor and the glory that are yours now and forevermore. So please, uh, I'm in need of you this morning, God. I just pray that this, this awesome passage, God, that I would just stand behind it and that, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would um, encourage us this morning. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good, good. Um, my name is Dan Hardy. I'm one of the pastors here. I serve alongside Pastor John, who's up here emceeing, and Pastor Pat and Pastor Chris, who's in the Czech Republic right now. And uh, we are, have been going through the uh, letter from Paul to Timothy called First Timothy, the book of First Timothy. And we're finishing it up today. So one of the things that, um, that we really um, value here and we stand behind probably 70% of the time is teaching through a book of the Bible. And the reason we do that is because um, God's Word is complete. It's complete in its canon. It's complete in its message. Also, what it does is it helps us stand behind God's Word rather than bringing, um, I have all kinds of agendas. 
I have all kinds of, of, of pet things that if, if you let me that I would speak on. But what we do is we actually go through God's Word. And, and we happen to arrive on this passage today. And it's a warning, actually, and an encouragement to the rich of this age. You and I, actually, speaking to us that we, we are the rich. No matter, it's all relative, but no matter where you're at, I can pretty much guarantee you that in the worldwide terms that you are um, rich. And, and my prayer is, is that you would walk out of here um, compelled to live a generous life, more generous. Whatever you walked in with, this is the most generous body on the planet, actually. This church, if you're walking in here for the first time, what you're going to experience the second time, the third time, and the 60th time is people. The church, the local church, that are the most generous group of people that I've ever had an opportunity to serve alongside. But my prayer is no matter, even in spite of that, my prayer is along with Paul is that 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 you would, whatever level you're putting your hope in riches rather than your hope in God, is that, that God would, by the Holy Spirit, would somehow just convict you and encourage you that you are placing false hope in riches, today's riches and future riches. And I pray the result of that would be along with Paul here, would be that, that you would be rich in good works, that you would be generous, and you'd be ready to share. That's that's Paul's message for us today. And I'm going to give you a little bit of context. If you have not been with us or maybe you're, you're, um, you've missed a few Sundays, a little bit of context, a little bit of review. Um, when Christianity came to Ephesus, Ephesus was one of the richest um, areas um, in our wealthiest areas in the entire ancient word, world. And not unlike northern Colorado, it was a very wealthy place. And quite naturally, some of the people that were converted, that were redeemed, that were saved by the gospel, were rich in their present age. Paul's first letter to Timothy here is is an urgent appeal to Timothy to stop false teachers from teaching a different doctrine. And at the same time, it was an encouragement from Paul to Timothy to teach sound doctrine. And he describes sound doctrine in chapter 1, verse 10, as a doctrine that agrees with or accords with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So any doctrine in any church that does not agree with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that humanity is depraved and that the only hope of humanity is for a perfect God to come down and take on humanity and live a perfect life that we couldn't live, and to die a sinner's death that we deserve, and then to victoriously raise again from the dead. That is the true doctrine. Everything that disagrees with that is a false doctrine. And then all throughout this book, the kind of the mission statement for this letter, this book, if you will, is found in chapter 3, verses 13 through uh, 16. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And if I could just summarize it for you, that the mission of Paul speaking to Timothy is to um, help the church know how to order itself and to conduct itself. Not, not in the building. The building's not the church. You're the church. And actually, there's a big C church, a universal church, and it's every man, woman, and child that has been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus, that have put their faith in Christ alone, faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone. That's the Big C Church. But we're a local expression of that. And Paul is writing this letter to Timothy so that you and I would know how to order ourselves and conduct ourselves in this church family. And Paul refers to this proper conduct. Over and over again, he refers to it as godliness. That we're to be godly. Not goodly, but godly. Here's the difference between goodly and godly. Goodly behaves a certain way to earn something from God. But us who have been saved by grace, we've earned nothing. But we have been given righteousness. The great exchange where Christ, Jesus took our sin upon the cross and he gave us his righteousness. 
But godliness is a behavior, a Christ-like behavior that is rooted, rooted in and sprouts from the gospel. It's the gospel that motivates godly living. Earlier in chapter 6, a couple of weeks ago, Paul warned the church about the trap of considering godliness a means of gain. There was a trap then and there's a trap now for the church and that, that we can think that if we behave in a certain way, that we're going to earn more favor with God. But the truth is, is that if you know Jesus Christ, you have already got maximum favor with God. That you are his son and daughter. You are forever and fully loved by the Savior. But then he went on to say that godliness, well, he said godliness is not a means of gain. But then he went on to say that godliness with contentment is of great gain. And I'm going to underscore that word, even though that word isn't in our passage today, that, that, that this is one letter uh, up to, from Paul to Timothy. And, and there's a sense that the church is discontent. The rich church in Ephesus is discontent. And there's a sense in my heart, knowing me in my richness and knowing um, this culture in northern Colorado, that there is a tendency or a temptation for all of us to be discontent, even though we are rich. So he says, godliness with contentment is of great gain. He then warns of the pitfalls of desiring to be rich in chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. He says, those who desire to be rich are prone to fall away from the faith. And they experience grief and pain from this misplaced longing. And then we see um, in chapter 6 after that that Paul turns his attention from the the sum. He was talking about the sum in the church, sum, S-O-M-E, that desire to be rich, to the you. To the you, the man or woman of God. He He is now, and he says to us, those who are redeemed by the shed blood of Christ, he says to us who are men and women of God, he encourages us to flee from evil, to flee from the desire to be rich, to follow after righteousness or godliness, and to fight the good fight. You see, as I mentioned last week, that God is not opposed to working. He's opposed to earning. Jesus earned our salvation for us but we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Godliness takes discipline. It takes fighting while we're on this side of Jesus' return. Today we're going to look at Paul's final words to the church where he turns his attention to, uh, to those who are rich, not, just, not those who sinfully desire to be rich, but to you and I who are rich. And rich, I would define rich as those like you and I who have more than the mere essentials of food, clothing, and shelter. Is there anybody in here that does not describe? He's speaking to those who are affluent, comparatively speaking to others who do not have their daily needs met. He's speaking to all of us at Windsor Community Church, I believe. I mean... I know he's speaking to all of us because this is God's word for all believers. But this has direct application in a huge way to us in northern Colorado. A couple of statistics. I wanted to look for more statistics, but um, it it can just become overwhelming. Here's some statistics that I found. I got it from uh, Pew Research, and it's about um, worldwide wealth and how America fits into that. And um, high income. Worldwide high income, they get four different categories, high income down to poor. High income is $200 a day, is that right? No, $50 a day is high income worldwide. And in the world, 7% of the people in the world are high income. They make more than $50 a day. In the U.S., 55% of the population is high income, where we make over $50 a day. Middle income? $10 to $20 a day. Of the world, 9% of the world is middle income, 32% of the U.S. So 32 and and 55, that's, what is that, 87% 
of the U.S. is considered middle or high income. Poor, less than $2 a day, the world has 15% of the population are poor. And the U.S. has less than 2%. Are we rich? We are rich on most any scale you want to measure it on. Over the years, um, I've lived in plenty. And I've had, we've had just short spurts of want, actually. But even in our want, we were always sheltered. We had food. We could get medical care when we wanted it. There's been times in my life where I've worried and I've been discontent over not having enough money. And I can honestly say before you all today that, um, well, first of all, I want to say this right up front, and, we'll, and I'll probably say it again, that, um, that it's not sin to have a lot of money. It's not sin to have a big house. It's not sin to have a new car. The sin is in a desire to be rich, in a hope of riches over a hope of God. But I can, I can tell you that, that right now on this side, on this, uh, my life where it stands right now, that um, we probably got less overall, like net worth, than we had 12, 13 years ago. And I can tell you that I am more content And my wife is more content than we've ever been. And, and, I, and I don't think it necessarily has to do with um, having a lot or having less. It has to do with the heart. It has to, um, but I'm, I'm grateful that the Lord in His providence took a lot away from us so that I could experience um, what we've been able to experience. Over the years, I've believed the lie that, that taking a hold of that which is truly life is more about the American dream of a secure retirement than living a generous life in, in today in the here and now. And I want to just tell you, if you want to take a, a hold of eternal life, like Paul is talking about, if you want to take a hold of real life, it has nothing to do with the finer things of life. It has nothing to do with it. We're going to talk about the finer things of life that God's given them to us to enjoy, so we should what? Enjoy it. But it has nothing, there is no correlation between what we have and living the abundant life in Christ. In fact, I would tell you that the more we have, the harder it is. Not impossible, but the harder it is to live the abundant life. And what I'm finding, the older and older I get, I do it so imperfectly, is that being rich in good works, living generously, and ready to share has resulted in unbelievable peace, joy, and living the abundant life. Where are you at today? Do you consider yourself rich? You should. My heart is that you'd walk away just in awe of God, enjoying what He's given you. No matter if He's given you little or a lot, that you would enjoy it. And whether He's given you a little or a lot, that you would be rich in good works, you'd be generous, and you'd be ready to share. I've already seen this body operate this way. But the greatest impact we're going to have with the gospel that we want to proclaim, the gospel that people are going to hear that are, that are lost, it actually, we, we need to demonstrate it before we declare it. We've got to demonstrate it while we declare it. That if we're um, just uh, jamming the gospel down people's throats and we could care less about their temporal state, they may not be as apt to hear the good news that will solve their eternal state. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. I'm going to read these again, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. In these three verses, Paul lays out two dangers, or warnings, if you will, and then he speaks to an obligation that we have as being the rich in this age. First part of verse 17, he says, don't be haughty. Don't be, you can be hearty, but don't be haughty. Be rich, uh, 
It's a, it's a false pride. This speaks to a, a pride that believes what you have is solely because you earned it. It also speaks to a pride that you are better than others that have less than you have. That somehow if they would have just worked harder or had a better education, that maybe they would have arrived at the same um, wealthy state that you are. Now, there are some universal principles about the sluggard, about the worker. I want to read Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. So there is a principle. There is a principle. We talked about this in Job of sowing and reaping, is there not? There's a principle that if you um, don't exercise and, and you eat like crud, that you're probably not going to be healthy. If you get into a lot of debt, um, you're probably going to have financial issues. If you work hard, um, there's a higher probability that you're going to have more money. It's a principle. Let me read this from Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. She works. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So I wanted to throw that in there just, to, 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 just so you know that I know that you know that there is the principle of sowing and reaping. But God doesn't, his, his promises don't always coincide with that. Paul is warning us in this chapter 6, verse 17, he's warning us against the pride of riches, a false pride and a false identity in our homes, in our cars, in our vacations. It's I don't think he's warning against cars and vacations, but, but that's, that's where our pride comes in, is that we, we, we have an identity in where we live and what we drive and the vacations that we go on. It's a pride rooted in not understanding that everything we have, no matter how hard we've worked for it, was given to us from the Lord. It's God that brings ultimate success and provision. At the end of verse 17, Paul actually says that it's God who provides us with everything. And you know the verse from James 1.17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom, no, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let me ask you this question. Rich men and women, how do you view what you have? That you earned it, therefore you deserve it? Or it's a gift from the Lord. Do you have a proper understanding that ultimately it's God who provides and that every good and perfect gift is actually a gift that even though you worked hard for it, was graciously given by Him? Second half of verse 17. He said, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes or trust in on the uncertainty of riches, on wealth, but charge them to set their hopes on God, actually the living God who provides everything to us to enjoy. Two things I want to point out from the second half of verse 17. We are not to place our hope or trust in the uncertainty of riches. We are to trust and place our hope on the living God. Is anybody old enough to live through any kind of economic cycle in the United States? There are cycles. Stock markets go up and down. Housing prices go up and down. People like me that were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year go bankrupt, quite frankly. It happens. So we're not to place our hope or trust in the uncertainty of riches. The only certainty of riches is that one day they will vanish. We can't take them with us. We're to trust in and place our hope in the living God. Paul is speaking here of false security, misplaced hope. And this verse is not promoting asceticism, if I'm saying that right. It's not promoting that we can't have good things. Paul's not saying that being rich is bad. It's placing our hope and trust in riches that he's warning us about. Our future, your future um, financially uh, is uncertain at best. 
uncertain at best. But man, I came to hear an encouraging message. But your eternal hope is forever secure. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Proverbs 23, 4 through 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, on the wealth, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings and it flies, flies like an eagle toward heaven. The only certainty to wealth is that we can't take it with us. And neither can our heirs. Really appreciate how Jason kind of set this chapter up two weeks ago, talking about the giver and the gifts. When, we, when our hope is rightly placed in God, the giver of the gifts, rather on the good gifts he gives, we will live thankful lives knowing that all of our wealth is from him, the giver of everything. And when we have that right understanding, the right focus on the giver rather than the gifts, this will propel us to live generous lives. When we think that we earned it, and we're afraid that it's going to get taken away, we're going to lose it, we're not going to live generous lives. But when we understand it's all a gift anyways, and we're stewards and managers of it, it's going to compel us to live generous lives. You see, when we set our hope on the uncertainty of riches, when we risk over-preparing for the future, it can result into perpetual discontentment. Wealth is so uncertain. But God's promises are guaranteed to the believer. I've never seen this verse in this way that I'm going to show you here. Proverbs 13, 5 through 6. I've read the front end of it, and I've read the back end of it. But I've never really seen the two together. I've read them together, but I've never really recognized them together. It says this. The author of Hebrews says this. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Doesn't mean you can't be rich. Doesn't mean you can't plan for retirement. Doesn't mean that you can't upside your house. Doesn't mean you can't buy a newer car. Doesn't mean you can't go to Gestapo with Nancy and I in February. Actually, you can't. You can go in March, but you can't go in February with us. It means be free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, get this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, because he will never leave us nor forsake us, our money might, but because he will never leave us nor forsake us, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man or the economy do to me. That's where our hope is. Since he is the source of everlasting riches and he will never leave us nor forsake us, we can be free from the love of money and we can be content with what he has given us and not be overly consumed with preparing for an un certain future. God made this world, and He made it for us to enjoy. I hope you hear that. I hope you hear that, that wherever you're at, whatever He's given you, He's given it to you to enjoy. Enjoy it. Don't put your hopes in it. Don't necessarily desire more. Desire more of the giver, not more of the gifts. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 says, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. There's a tragic irony here, though. And the tragic irony is that the preoccupation of getting more or securing our future at the expense of generous living spoils our enjoyment. You see, when we're grabbing, striving, toiling for more and more and more, we become discontent. Have you watched commercials on TV lately? And the more discontent we are, the less generous we're going to be. And there's two ways to get enough, actually. One is to desire more and more, and the other is to desire less. And this principle commandment, actually, of godly contentment is not about having everything or having nothing. We can, Paul says he was content in all things and in nothing. It's about enjoyment. It's about thanksgiving. 
Are you discontent, worried, overconsumed with financial security? Paul, in verse 18, will now give us the secret sauce to overcome false hope in the security of material wealth, the gifts, and rightly placing our hope on God, the giver of all good gifts. It's right there in the passage, it's generosity. It's doing good, it's being rich in good works, it's being ready to share, it's being generous. You see, generosity, giving, ready to share, breaks the power of money. Serving, giving, hospitality loosens the bonds of discontentment and the desire for more. This lifestyle will assure that our hope is in God and not in our riches. You see, folks, generous living is the way that we affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ rather than the lordship of money. Verse 18, the rich, you and I already do good to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. In the first three, rich, uh, we're, we're to do good, to be rich in good works, and be generous. Um, Paul's just hammering it. But the last one, be ready to share, is from the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. So we're not to, um, we're made for relationship. You see, we live in a culture, a church culture, not here, but in America and really worldwide, where there are so many opportunities just to chuck money at things and think we're being generous. But he says, be ready to share your life. Next time you, you see a, a homeless person at a, at a restaurant or at a stop, um, stop, get out of your car. Ask him what his need is. Be ready to share your life, not just your money. We have two core pursuits here. One, we have six core pursuits. Two of them are this, um, community with believers and relationship with outsiders. You see, the Sunday gathering's good. But it's hard to know how to be generous with each other, how to, how to, be, um, um, how to be rich in good works towards one another if we don't have relationship with one another. If we're not in fellowship, koinia with one another. And so I thought that was instructive, actually, that as you read this, it just sounds like, you know, let's just, let's just, do, let's just do good deeds and, you know, throw money at things. But no, it's not just throwing money. It's, it's doing good, being rich in good works, being generous and ready to share, yes, even our lives with people. I was just thinking about what's just maybe some practical ideas. You know, some of you might be sitting there going, you know, I really, I really want to do good. I want to be generous in good works. I, I want to be rich in good works. I want to be generous. I want to share my life, but I'm maxed. My checkbook is maxed. My calendar is maxed. Um, I barely got enough um, month at the end of my money. Got two jobs, wife's working a job, got little kids. Well, there's a call in God's word for all, especially the rich, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, be ready to share. So maybe the solution, if you are one of those, is to um, maybe downsize your house. Maybe get an older car. Maybe get a second job for right now so you can pay down your school debt. I don't know. I don't know what the solution is for you. All I know is that God is calling us as individuals in a church to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. If you're not able to answer that call, whatever that call is for you, you need to ask the Lord how to free up your money and your time so you can live that way. And I think only you and your family can answer that. I want to just say this, um, if you're new with us here today, I think John mentioned it, the pastors here, don't, we don't know what you give, actually. And this isn't just about, this isn't just about um, uh, doing good, being rich in good works, being generous and ready to share at Windsor Community Church. This is about, this is a, a style of living, a lifestyle, if you will. But as it pertains to giving to this church, we don't know what you give. So we're actually shepherding with both hands behind our back. So we don't, we don't know. We, well, we can observe your marriages. Say, hey, man, dude, I mean, the way that you've been treating your wife, that is not the way that Christ loves the church. 
But we have no idea how you, we don't look at your checkbook. We don't do any of that. So, so if you're feeling conviction this morning, just know that it is not from me. It's from the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the Holy Spirit never condemns. Never condemns. Only convicts and reminds you that you are fully loved while you are in process. The New Testament teaches that wealth is not a sin, but it's an immense responsibility. Wealth feeds pride and it roots us deeper into this world. And it will devour us if we have a love for it. But wealth is also a vast opportunity because as Calvin wisely remarked, a man's opportunities to do good to others increases with the abundance of his riches. So I think there's, there's nothing better for the kingdom, actually, is for rich people that are doing good, rich in good works, generous, and ready to share. So go for it. Go for it. Not to build your kingdom, but to build his kingdom. And some of you have been given a unique um, wiring to make money. And don't let the church ever tell you that it's not a good calling. Because it's a great calling. If God has wired you that way, go for it. But not to build your kingdom. Not to secure your retirement at the expense of people that are in need. God's given you the ability to make money, go for it. Verse 19, when we do good and we're rich in good works, we live generously and we're ready to share our lives, we are thus storing up treasure for ourselves as a foundation for the future, the coming age, so that we may take hold of that which is truly eternal life. You see, it's living this type of sacrificial, content life that we take a hold of what is truly life. If you have got the blahs, if you go, man, God just doesn't feel near to me. I'm open to the scriptures and I just don't hear him. You're worried and you're anxious. Go serve somebody. Go do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. Get your focus off your own situation and your fearful future. And serve someone else. And watch that contentment. And that joy. And take a hold of eternal life in ways that you've never taken a hold of it before. It's been said of wealth that you can't take it with you. At John Rockefeller, the rich banker from the 20s and 30s, somebody asked at his funeral, somebody asked, how much did he leave behind? And the answer was all of it. He left it all behind. Paul claims that we can lay up treasure in heaven. We can lay up treasure for this coming age. But to take our wealth with us, we must convert it, actually, into a different currency. And that currency is a heavenly currency of love. And that is, and, and generosity and doing good and ready to share is rooted in love. So God has given you money to be able to love and serve others. question for you. If your heart, as Jesus says, follows your treasure, where's your treasure? Are you more interested in building and protecting your kingdom or building and protecting God's kingdom? You see, giving and being generous is liberating. It's not constraining. It sets us free. It doesn't put us in bondage. It frees us from worrying about wealth. It frees us from the jealousy of wealth. It frees us from the busyness of accumulating wealth. It sets us free from the empty way of life. You see, everything belongs to God. We're managers. We're stewards of His resources. The tithe. Anybody heard of the tithe before? Are we the tithe in this church? We're actually not. It's an Old Testament. Tithe comes from an Old Testament command to give 10% to the temple. Tithe means a tenth. The New Testament does not mention tithing, although it sets an entirely different standard. And we see it in 2 Corinthians 8 9, and it's, and it's um, 
It's informed by the gospel. It says this, For you know, believer, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Not rich monetarily, but rich in Christ. The standard for giving this side of the cross is the generosity of Jesus, and he gave what? He gave everything. He gave everything. That doesn't mean that you need to sell your house and your cars and quit your job and live in a tent. But it means to remember that everything you have is His. So I suggest that that giving to a local body of a tenth is the minimum amount that a Christian should give. It seems crazy, actually, for people like you and I on this side of the cross that have experienced the extent of God's grace in Jesus Christ should give less than the people of the Old Testament who only had a picture and a shadow of the promise. And we can approach our generosity and our giving in three different ways. Legalistically. The Old Testament law required 10% giving to the temple. So in order to earn more righteousness, to earn more favor with God, I'm going to give 10%. The next is licentiously, meaning that I've been saved by grace. I don't have to give anything right now or next year. The third way is being motivated by the gospel, that my righteousness does not come from my obedience. My righteousness does not come from obeying God's commands. At the same time, I'm not my own. I've been purchased by Jesus and his death for me. So I realize that all that I have is really his. And in that case, a tithe, for example, is not enough. We're to live generous lives, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share because of Christ's generosity for us. Question, does your generosity demonstrate that you believe God is not only trustworthy to take care of you, but generous in how he does it. And we'll finish up in verses 20 through 21, where Paul gives this final charge to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Final words of the entire letter. Timothy, guard the deposit. Protect it like it's the most precious cargo you'll ever have. That deposit, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not his calling as a pastor. That's not what he's, that's not the deposit. It's not the church. That's not the deposit. It's sound doctrine that accords with or agrees with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is sound doctrine in the good news that Jesus was the promised Messiah who came to fallen humanity to reconcile them to a good and gracious creator. He lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death. He rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven where he reigns from the right hand of the Father. And until he returns to complete his kingdom, we're to live. By the power of the Holy Spirit, standing in the gospel, generous lives, ready to share. And Paul instructs Timothy to avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Here at WCC, I hope you never tire of hearing the gospel. I hope you, you, you never think this, that, hey, I've been a Christian for 20 years. Can we just get to the meat? The gospel is the foundation. The gospel is the schoolhouse of which every other class takes place, as C.J. Mahaney said. And in this church and in every church that, that guards the deposit, we will encourage one another to stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel to ourselves and preach it to one another. And to remind one another of who we are in Christ and who He is. We'll stand in it, we'll preach in it, we'll boast it, and we'll guard it. 
And I think I say this every time we do communion. I can't think of a better Sunday to do communion. And uh, I think Chris might have said this last month. We've said this in the past, that communion, it's really an anniversary of sorts. That when you were saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, in many ways that was your wedding day. You were united with Christ, forever united. And when you were baptized, if you were baptized, you were giving a, it was a wedding ceremony of sorts where you were given public proclamation that He is mine and I am His. And every time we celebrate communion, it's like an anniversary. We're being reminded of His love for us. That He who was poor became rich. Excuse me, He who was rich became poor so that we who were in poverty might become rich. I just want to encourage you as you come up, just um, take the elements back to your seat and do business. Um, and think through the passage that we looked at today. And if you're living in a um, fearful, uh, worrisome manner, and you've put your hope wrongly in riches or wealth rather than God, just confess that to Him. And be reminded that you're, never, you're not less loved because you're processing that. Just just confess that to them, and then I'll come back up and we'll take the elements together.
on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body. It will be broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the blood of the new covenant. Drink as often as you remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we um, are grateful to be living in the gap between the proverbial altar and the door. And Lord, we know from Scripture that our lives are not our own, that you not only uh, saved us from the penalty and guilt of our sin, but that you saved us into a relationship with the Father where our life is no longer our own, that we have been bought with a price. And I thank you that you are a good Father who gives good gifts, that, um, that truly uh, everything we have is more than we deserve. And I pray, God, that we would be ones who um, live uh, thankful, content lives, um, whether that be in plenty or in little. And uh, Lord, I pray, um, Father, that because of your generosity towards us, that, that we would be compelled to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, um, even to people that we may feel like um, don't deserve it. And I thank you for this body, thankful to be a part of it, thank you for uh, the uh, evidence of your spirit working and um, even the evidence of your generosity through these folks in those backpacks and through the serving our schools. And I just think back to the, the wells that you uh, so graciously allowed us to participate in in Burkina Faso. So God, please, I just I, I pray that, that we would never um, have our hope um, wrongly placed in riches, uh, but Lord, because we're righteous already because of faith in Christ, God, I pray that would just compel us to live lives that are sold out for the kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.